Amen. We are continuing on today in a brief five-sermon series through the book of Ruth. If you have not been with us for the first two, we are in the third of five today. Don't sweat that. I'm going to seek to give a little bit of context here in just a minute. But the book of Ruth, one of the greatest short stories ever written, it is that for a number of reasons. It is that in part because it is full, like our lives, of suffering and pain. And at the same time, in the midst of that suffering and pain, and through it, we see the character of our God who is a redeemer. There is redemption all over this short book. There are types and shadows and pointers to what is coming in the Lord Jesus Christ all over the place in Ruth. Now that is true. The types and shadows and pointers to Christ, that is true of the entire Bible. Consider this regarding the law of God. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, the law was ultimately about Jesus. What about the tabernacle and the priesthood? Consider these words. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. In other words, the tabernacle and the priesthood were ultimately about Jesus. What about the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the whole thing. Consider these words. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Saints, this stuff is why Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. They do. The entirety of the scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ. So let's look to them now together. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, if you've not already done so. The conscientious among us might be ahead of us already. While you're flipping to Ruth chapter 2, just a brief word of context, where we've been, especially for those of you who might not have been here the last couple of weeks. Historically, the account of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges, We've considered how that was a time of lawlessness and apostasy. It was not a good season in Israel's history. 
We read in the very beginning of Ruth chapter 1 that there was a famine in the land of Judah. We thought about this, how the Lord had promised under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, to bless his people for obedience, but how he had also said that curses and judgment would come for disobedience. One of the things that he said he would do if his people broke his law is he would make the sky above them like metal, right? And the earth beneath them like iron. In other words, the land would not bear food. We read about Naomi, married to a man named Elimelech, who left the promised land to go to a foreign country with her husband and with her two sons. They get there and sojourn in the land of Moab. Her husband dies. Then her sons marry Moabite women, foreign women, and her sons die. So Naomi is left with two daughters-in-law, one named Orpah, one named Ruth. Naomi hears that God has visited his people and has given them food. So she's going to return to Judah. She's going to return to Bethlehem. As they're making their way, she and her two daughters-in-law, she seeks to dissuade Orpah and Ruth from coming with her. She lays it on thick. She says, look, effectively this, God is against me. He has assaulted me. There are no prospects for you if you come with me. No prospects of family, no prospects of marriage. You would be far better off to go back to your own land, to your people and to your gods. Ruth, for her part, persists. And Naomi eventually gives up and just stops talking to her. They're going to go together to Judah, to Bethlehem. So they do. When they arrive, the town is a buzz. Not a huge place. People were aware, certainly, when Naomi and her household left. She's been gone for some time. When she gets back, the people are like, is this Naomi? Naomi, is that you? To which she responds, don't call me Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant. She says, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter because that is how God has dealt with me. The Almighty has been very bitter in his dealings with me. I went away full from this place, and I have come back with absolutely nothing. I've come back empty. Things are bad in Naomi's world. They're not great in Ruth's either. But there's a ray of hope, a ray of grace at the very end of Ruth chapter 1. The barley harvest is beginning which is where we'll pick up today in Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to read the entirety of Ruth 2, verses 1 to 23, before we consider it together. This is the word of God. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. Pretty simple plan for our time today. As is often the case in narratives, it's just really good to go through the story together, to go through the account. Consider it, observe it. That's what we're going to do in the first part. Just consider the text. And then in the second portion of the message, I want to offer three reflections for our time together to conclude. So part one, let's look to the text together. In verse one, we're introduced to a man named Boaz, who we are told is a worthy man, perhaps a man of some means or perhaps a man of some stature in the community. This little bit about Boaz is inserted here in the narrative. The narrator is telling us this. 
in the flow of the whole thing, again, remember chapter divisions and all that kind of stuff didn't exist in the original. In the flow of the whole thing, it's kind of like now you should know in the midst of everything going on, you should know there's this name, this man, excuse me, named Boaz, and he's a redeemer. You should just know that. And now we're going to move on and we're going to pick up the narrative and we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse two, the narrative picks back up. Ruth asks Naomi if she can go into the fields to glean. When you hear that word glean, it's not necessarily a word we use all the time. It's not an agricultural society that we live in. It would mean to essentially scavenge in the fields to acquire food to live off of, right? It's kind of a hand-to-mouth kind of way of living. In terms of this reaping in the field and gleaning after the reapers in the field, it's good for us to be aware there was a law in Israel that people were not to harvest all the way to the corner of their fields. They were to leave a little bit unharvested. That little portion of the harvest was to be left for sojourners, foreigners, also for widows and the fatherless. Also, too, if you were left a little bit of grain in the field, even by oversight, you were to leave it for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. We can read of these things in Leviticus 19, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 24. So that's what's going on here. When Ruth, as a widow, and in particular as a foreigner, is asking hey, I want to go into the fields and glean. I want to follow the reapers around and pick up the pieces that drop so that we can have some food to eat. This would have been a normal thing to do. Naomi approves of her request. She says, go, my daughter, go and do that. Verse three, Ruth sets out and she's going to glean in the field after the reapers. Now the language here, she happens to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Literally, This would read something like, her chance chanced upon the portion of the field that Boaz owned. Or as we might render it in our modern vernacular, as luck would have it, wink, wink, right? She comes to this portion of the field. Of course, we know it's not luck. It's not chance. It's providence, right? God is in this. This continues in verse 4, this providential stuff. Not only does Ruth just happen to come upon this portion of the field that Boaz owns, while she's there working, behold, Boaz comes from Bethlehem. There he is. He greets his workers, kind of like we do sometimes where we say, the Lord be with you, and someone says, and also with you. It's that kind of thing here. Boaz then asks the servant in charge, the foreman, effectively. He asks about Ruth. He doesn't know her, doesn't recognize her. So he asks, whose young woman is this? To whom does she belong? Is she part of a family? Is she attached to anyone? The servant then responds that she is the young Moabite woman who had returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Remember, people were aware of this. For him to say, oh no, she's the young Moabite woman that came back with Naomi is enough. The town was aware. You remember the town was abuzz when Naomi arrived with Ruth back in chapter 1. The servant then tells Boaz that Ruth requested to be able to glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And that she's been at it all day with the exception of a short rest. So then Boaz is going to address Ruth for the first time beginning in verse 8. He addresses her with a term of endearment. He says, my daughter. He tells her not to go into another field, but to stay in his field and glean. 
He says that she should stay close to his young women. He also assures her that he has charged his young men to leave her alone. I mean, remember in all of this, this might be lost on us a little bit. To be in the fields in general was not a safe place. To be in the fields as a young woman alone was even worse, right? So Boaz is looking out for her. He says, too, when she's thirsty, she's to go and drink what Boaz's young men have drawn. So in other words, he's going overboard. He just keeps adding to all of these things that he's done for her and is going to continue to do for her in order to protect her, in order to provide for her. He's not obligated to do these things, but he's going to do these things. In verse 10, Ruth responds. She falls on her face. Now, this is not an act of worship. This would have just been culturally something that a person in Ruth's position would have done toward an individual in Boaz's position. And then she asks a series of very good and pointed questions. Why have I found favor in your eyes? She asks. Why is it that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? In other words, why would you take notice of the unnoticeable? Why have you taken notice of someone that you frankly just should not take notice of? Why have you gone out of your way like this to show kindness to me? And then Boaz responds, He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. His answer is this. I've heard what you've done. I've heard about the sacrifices that you've made for your mother-in-law. He then pronounces blessing upon Ruth. He says, may the Lord reward you. And then he states that Ruth has come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. That has a lot to do with what he's doing. It's clear in his reasoning. Hold on to that. Ruth then responds again in verse 13. She acknowledges that she has found favor in Boaz's sight. She says that he has comforted her and spoken kindly to her, even though she is not even one of his servants. Like, I'm not even yours. You have no reason to treat me this way, and yet you're showing me this kind of loving kindness. Hold on to that too. In verse 14, the loving kindness continues. Now it's mealtime. Boaz invites Ruth over. He invites her to have bread and wine. Then he serves her. Now, if all of this that we've been talking about does not like flashing red sign say, Jesus, you're not reading it right. Full stop. Ruth eats until she's satisfied and has some left over. Then Boaz, after mealtime's over, Ruth is going to go back to work. Boaz tells his young men to let Ruth glean basically wherever she wants and don't say a word to her. Then he says, oh, and 
let's just do one more. Like pull some grain out of the bundles and just kind of leave it around so that she can pick it up. Then we read in verse 17 that Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she goes to beat out the grain, like at a threshing floor kind of thing. And what she ended up with, like grain to take home, was an ephah worth of barley. Now, ephah, that's not a word we use, not a measurement we use. It's about 30 to 50 pounds. So for the dog owners in the room, you know, like the biggest bags of dog food that you can buy at the store, it's like that much. It's a lot of grain. For context, too, it would have been normal for a worker to take home one to two pounds of grain in a day. She's taking home 10, 20 times that amount. In other words, there's abundant blessing and abundant provision. And remember, in that abundance of provision, this is lost on us because we really have never experienced famine. We've never experienced a period of time where we legitimately did not know how we would eat not even tomorrow, but like next week and next month. We don't know where food's coming from. That's what these people had been experiencing, and now there's this abundance of provision. Ruth then takes the grain with her into the city, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, sees how much she has gleaned, how much she's come home with. And Ruth also gives Naomi her leftover food from lunch. And then Naomi's like, girl, where did you glean today? Who did you work with? I mean, no doubt Naomi is astonished by this too. She would have had no idea that Ruth would come home with this much barley when Ruth had left that morning. Ruth then tells Naomi about her day and says, the man with whom I work today, his name is Boaz. And then Naomi says, verse 20, may he, Boaz, Be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, the Lord's kindness, right, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, that, if you've been tracking with the story of Ruth, is a significant shift in this woman. More on that in a minute. Then Naomi adds, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Again, a little bit of explanation here. When she's using this language, he's one of our redeemers. He's a kinsman redeemer. You heard Blake use that phrase earlier. What is being referred to here are laws of familial redemption in the book of Moses. These would have included things like this, the duty of a close relative to marry the widow of a deceased relative in order to carry on the family name and property, or the duty of a close relative to buy back property that a loved one had sold to settle a debt, or maybe even to buy back a relative himself or herself who had sold himself into slavery. This is the kind of thing. When Naomi uses this language, he's one of our redeemers. This is what she's referring to. So all that's in view. Then in verse 21, Ruth is like, oh yeah, one more thing. Boaz said that I can keep doing this until the harvest is over. And Naomi says, that's good, my daughter, that you go with his servants, lest something happen to you. Naomi knows that Ruth will be safe with Boaz's servants. And it's clear because of Boaz's kindness to them that not only do they have all this grain today, but they're going to continue to have provision. Boaz is providing for Ruth and Naomi. That's evident here. He's going to take care of them. 
And so, verse 23, Ruth does that. She gleans with the servants of Boaz until the end of the harvest. Given the situation that Ruth and Naomi had found themselves in, famine, their husbands are dead, they are anything but provided for and safe until now. And they're both provided for and safe. Things are going much better. Ruth continues to live with her mother-in-law. We see there at the end of chapter 2. That's kind of the pivot verse, the hinge verse to get us into chapter 3. As good as things are going here, there's something still to be accomplished. Ruth does not have her own household. She will. We know that's where the story is going. We'll read more of that in chapter 3. So this brings us to the point, the second portion of the message today, where I want us to reflect together on this text. Before I even give us the first reflection, consider a few things. Just have these in your mind. Ruth, she's a foreigner, not a part of the covenant people of God by birth. And she's a widow. In other words, in this context, she has no status. She's utterly dependent. She is, even as she put it, not a person to take notice of. And then there is Naomi, who is so bitter that she can't even see straight, let alone do anything about her condition. And so, even as we're going to reflect together along these lines, may we be mindful that we are in need of a Redeemer who takes notice of those who aren't worthy. We, too, are in need of a Redeemer who alone can do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And God has given us such a Redeemer. And we thank him for that. Reflection number one. Boaz, in this account, serves as a type of Christ. Say that again. Boaz, in this account, serves as a type of Christ. Now, that's a theological term I'm using. When I say he's a type of Christ, I mean Boaz points to Christ and he points to what some of the things that Christ would come and do for us. So in Boaz and in what Boaz does for Ruth, we see a picture of Christ and what he would come to do for us. Think about Boaz. In this account, he is a redeemer. And in this account... Consider how he interacts towards Ruth, the one he would redeem. He reaches out to her. He initiates with her. He goes out of his way to be good to her. He notices the unnoticeable. He provides for the one who needs provision. He protects the one in need of protection. And then... As if those things were not enough, he invites her to his table. And he serves her. Bread and wine, and Ruth feasted and was satisfied. Now there's an image for the church. The Lord Jesus has also sought us out. While we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us. 
We were not worthy. We still are not worthy in and of ourselves. Let's get that straight. The Christian life is not a project of turning yourself into the kind of person that God would, would have been happy to save in the first place. He justifies the ungodly by faith. We don't deserve his favor, and yet he loves us. Why? The answer can only be found within him, his character as a redeemer. He loves us because he loves us. And he gave himself for us. And he has invited us to his table. He too has given us bread and wine. He too serves us there. In that meal, we are nourished and sustained and satisfied. In that meal, we are comforted. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Beloved, we will feast with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be a great day. And between now and then, he has given us his supper. The supper in which we participate in his body and in his blood. In the bread that we break and the cup that we drink. The supper in which we feed on Christ and all of his merits by faith. In it, the supper, the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. That's John Calvin. Or as Gerard Weiss wrote, the promise of God in Christ Jesus is of such extraordinary magnitude that it seems almost impossible that it also applies to someone like me. Therefore, the Lord, by means of his supper, stamps the seal of confirmation upon this promise. The Lord is kind, saints, and he's good. See, he knows that we're weak. He knows that we lack love and we lack faith. And so he gives us things like his table, that we may come and be nourished, that we might receive what our love and faith might lack. We will come to this table later, and may we all be encouraged and comforted that as surely as we put the bread and the cup in our mouths, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. Second reflection. Naomi, in this account, is repented by God's loving kindness. I'm going to say that again. Those words are intentionally chosen. Naomi is repented by God's loving kindness. Now, dead giveaway moment. She doesn't repent herself. God repents her. All right, so we're going to think about this together. Look at verse 20. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, in the aftermath of everything that's happened, Ruth has come home with a boatload of grain, and she's just found out Boaz is the one who gave her that. Naomi says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord 
whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And when she's talking about whose kindness, she's talking about the Lord. The, the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, that is a massive shift in this woman's outlook. Like it's one of those things about snap your neck. It's such a, it's such a change, right? Consider just the latter verses of chapter 1, verse 20. She says to the people who are like, Naomi, girl, is that you? Is that you? You're really back. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. And that's how God has dealt with me. He has caused me to come back empty, even though I left here full. Why call me Naomi when the Lord himself has taken the stand to testify against me? He is against me, yo. That's what she's saying. And he's brought calamity upon me. He's done nothing good to me. She says that. We've thought about her quite a bit. She had left the promised land. She'd gone to eat somewhere else. Things go terribly for her. She comes back to the promised land because she's heard that God has provided food for his people, but she comes back indignant with God. Her perspective is that God has assaulted her and he's done nothing but bad things to her. So what happened in the span of 20-something verses? What happened? Did you go from that perspective to his loving kindness has not ever stopped. His loving kindness toward the living and the dead, it's ongoing. Praise be to the Lord. Well, in short, God gave Naomi a glimpse of his love for her. He gave her a glimpse of his covenant faithfulness toward her, a glimpse of his grace to her. On the one hand, upon seeing that, Naomi's mouth is shut. Right? Her grumbling is stopped. She's not throwing bitter accusations toward God at the end of chapter 2. And on the other hand, her mouth is opened. Words of praise and gratitude are now on her lips. And now, I already said this once, we're going to say it again. If this is not obvious to you, it should be. Naomi did not do that for Naomi. Amen, somebody. God did that. You see, he did it for Naomi, and he does it for you. He does it for me. God repented her, and he repents us. Amen? You see, repentance is not some work that we perform. It's a gift that the Lord gives to his people. It's not an emotion. A lot of times when we talk about repentance, we talk about it like it's this emotion or this feeling that we stir up within ourselves. It's not that. It is a turning that the Lord enacts within us. And that turning is always from ourselves and toward Christ. Like the shepherd in Luke 15, right, that goes out after the lost sheep, so Jesus comes after us. 
We stray. We go our own way. We do what's right in our own eyes. And he pursues in order to restore. Perverse and foolish, oft I strayed. But yet in love he sought me. And on his shoulder gently laid. And home rejoicing brought me. Lost sheep, saints, don't find their own way home. It takes a search and rescue mission. And Christ is the seeker. We are the found. This is what happened for Naomi. And how many times has it happened in your life? How many times has it happened in mine? Thanks be to God. This account, this portion, is a wonderful illustration of Paul's words in Romans 2, that the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance. That doesn't compute for us. If you have a whack definition of what repentance is, it's not going to make any sense. The kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance. How so? It's like the lost son in Luke 15. It's the love of his father that ultimately and finally repents and restores that son. He knew he was wrong. He planned to come back to his father as a slave. He was going to work for it. He was going to do something to make it all okay. And the climactic moment of that parable of the lost son, the prodigal, is when the son shows back up and the father runs to him and embraces him. The son begins the rehearsed plea, but the father stops him and says, bring the best robe in the house and put it on him. Give him a ring for his hand and shoes for his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. We're going to celebrate because my son was dead and he's now alive. He was lost and now he's found. That's the moment. The father's love restored his son. The son's mouth is stopped and joy ensues. May God give us grace that we would see him this way. May we never doubt his love toward us and his faithfulness to us. And praise God for those moments when he makes these things as plain as day to us like he did for Naomi in our passage. He gives the gift of repentance. He breaks our hearts and then he heals them. He comes after us in love and brings us home. This is our God. And so saints take heart. Reflection number three. The saints are those who have taken refuge in Christ. The saints are those who have taken refuge in Christ. Boaz's words, a blessing to Ruth. May you be blessed, he says, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This language of taking refuge in the Lord is all over the Old Testament. The Psalms are filled with it. And we get the image. It's one of a bird sheltering its young, right, under its wings. The chicks are helpless. They need shelter. 
the wings of the parent are there. In Ruth's case, she had left her homeland and her gods to seek refuge in the Lord. And what a refuge he is. Christians are not people who are really good at keeping rules. Christians are not people who have it all figured out. Christians are not people who have it all together. Christians are people who have taken refuge under the wings of Christ. That's what we are. Consider us. Consider our need. God made us. He made us in his image. He gave us his law. His law is good. His law is perfect. His law is upright. The problem with it is that we're none of those things. After the fall of man, we're plunged into sin. We have a nature that is corrupt. We are inclined toward evil. And we break God's law. It's what we do. And so, the holiness of God's law, the righteousness of his law, crushes us. It condemns us. It's our death sentence because we are sinners. We are ones who have broken all of God's commands. If you don't think that's you, with all due respect, you're wrong. None of us have ever, alongside that, not only broken all of God's commands, we've never really kept any of them. You start with the first one. We're to have no other gods before him. Or as the prophets would summarize it, as Christ would summarize it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not one person in this room has done that for five seconds. The law crushes us. We've never kept a single one of God's commandments as we should. We have broken all of them. And even for those of us who have trusted Christ, because we are still in the flesh, we are still inclined toward all evil. We want to do good. We often fail to do so. We want to refrain from sin. We often find ourselves sinning. Like John Newton wrote of himself, I am a riddle unto myself, a heap of inconsistence. It's like, bro, you're reading our mail. It's true of me. It's true of you. We, because of our sin, in light of God's law, rightly deserve to face his judgment. We, like Ruth before Boaz, have no standing in ourselves before God. We are not even worthy to be called his servants. So what hope then do we have? What hope could there be for sinners like you and me? It is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is that God justifies the ungodly. It's not that he's in the business of justifying godly people. Because if that were true, there would be no hope for us. It is that even though we are lawbreakers and still struggle against the corruption of our flesh, we are credited with the perfect holiness, righteousness, and satisfaction of Christ by faith. So what does that mean for us? It means several things. It means that by faith in Christ, as he becomes our representative, it is as though we have never sinned. 
That's big. It is as though I have never committed a sin because Christ was sinless for me. It is also as though I have never been a sinner. It is as though I'd never had a corrupt nature. And perhaps even more astonishingly, it is as though I have done all of the perfectly obedient works that Christ did. Not only did he deal with sin, not only is my slate clean, he then gives me, he gives us all the righteousness that we'll ever need. And we hide ourselves in the rock who is Christ. We take refuge in him. Like Moses, whom God put in the cleft of the rock, when his glory passed by. Rock of ages, we sung it earlier, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath, make me pure. We take refuge in Christ, the rock of ages. We take refuge in the Lamb of God, whose blood covers us, whose blood has washed away our sins, in whose blood we have washed our robes and made them white. On account of the blood of Christ, there is nothing now but love and grace from God to us. No condemnation. There is no fear. We've been given a spirit of adoption, not slavery, that we might call God Father. No longer a judge, now our Father. We can now approach the throne of God with boldness, and this pleases the Lord. May he give us grace, even with that, to take him at his word, to agree with him about that. We talk rightly about agreeing with God in a number of ways. We agree with God about our sin. Amen. We cling to his promises. We heed his warnings. Amen. May he give us grace that we would agree with him, that we can approach his throne with boldness. I don't always feel as though I can. I don't know about you. But on account of Christ, we can. It delights the Father that we would come to him. Not only has the blood of Christ washed away our sin, Jesus has given us his own righteousness to wear. We thought about this a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, I don't remember what sermon it is. Somebody can help me. I think it was the last one in Jude. Go listen to the end of it if you haven't. Consider the parable of the wedding banquet. Consider how people who come in in their own clothes, they get thrown out. But then consider where you might be given a garment that is fit to be in the presence of God. It is only by faith in Christ where Jesus actually gives us his own righteousness to wear that we may have hope and peace before the Lord now and forever. Because we hope in Christ We, the unrighteous, take refuge in the righteous one. The one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked. The one who never stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. The one who delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on his law day and night. The one who is like a tree that stands eternally, always bearing fruit, who prospers in all that he does. And as the psalmist says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Saints, we do that by faith. We do that as we trust Christ in his word. We're going to do it together in just a moment as we come in faith to his table. Let's pray.